If you don't mind, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the third chapter, and I've entitled this message, Help, I'm Married to a Sinner. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's hard being perfect. <laughs> if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this passage together, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. It begins, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would not only I don't entertain us a bit, Lord, but also really penetrate us. We want you to speak into the deep parts of our lives, Lord, that we might gain true wisdom, Lord. We want to know more than just that there is a right and a wrong and a good and evil, Lord. We want to know the truth that sets us free, even if sometimes that truth is a bit painful. Grant us that grace, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a Monday morning in January, typical, the snow was on the ground, except that night uh, a warm front somehow had passed through and the snow had turned to rain and then it passed and the temperatures dropped again, leaving a, a clear glaze of ice across our driveway. Now our driveway has a fairly steep incline to it. But not giving any thought to it, as my wife was getting up in the morning to go out to get in the car, she asked if I would just close the garage door behind her as she was parked outside. And I said, sure, no problem. So as I'm standing there in my skivvies and bathrobe and slippers, watching her head out to the car, I suddenly see her hit the driveway, slip, fall down, And as she hits her bum on the sidewalk, which looked painful in and of itself, 
Her lunch, which was in a brown paper bag consisting of one can of tuna, flung up and hit her in the bridge of the nose. And as she rolled over, I looked at her and the blood is flowing down both sides of her face. Without thinking, and I underscore without thinking, that heroic part of my maleness kicked into overdrive and I ran quickly through the garage to her rescue, hitting the ice in my slippers. And the next thing I knew, I was looking at my feet over my head and I came crashing down on my back, breaking two ribs next to my spine. I, all I knew at that moment was I was in the greatest level of pain that anybody in the history of the world has ever experienced. <laughs> it went past childbirth, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm not just in pain, I can't breathe. The oxygen has been blown out of my, my lungs, and so I'm laying on the ice going, and I'm rolling over, and I'm trying to crawl up to my wife, and I'm just sliding down the driveway on the ice going, oh! And as I'm in the midst of this whole experience, this sudden thought came into my mind. Any moment, the neighbors are going to be driving by. <laughs> and they're going to see blood flowing down my wife's face, they're going to see me groaning and moaning in my skivvies as my bathrobe has flown open. <laughs> it's going to look like we got in this terrible fight and I lost. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true that God works everything for the good. He has a purpose and a design for everything. He has a way of taking the garbage of our life and transforming it into things of beauty. This is promised to us over and over again, and, and it did lead to a series of things. Five weeks of sitting, sleeping upright in a chair, uh, living, sucking on Percocet like it was Tums, and uh, basically trying to recover from this thing was a, a real challenge in and of itself. But you see, it led to all sorts of things because with that, taking all those medications, I ended up getting a bladder infection. Bladder infection led to a diagnosis of cancer, uh, which the, went through that whole thing, and then God delivered me of that. Eventually, the cancer comes back 10 years later. And I say all this because when you look at the trail of your life, you begin to realize that it's pockmarked for many of us, with all sorts of things. We're talking this morning, as Melody was sharing about how cancer comes in and invades so many people's lives, that we know that every one of us will probably die of one of two things. We'll either die of cancer or heart disease. One of those two things will take us out, but we know in between that, there's going to be all sorts of these kind of events that are difficult. And part of the question we find ourselves asking is, why, God? Not only does it happen to us, but we see it happening to people we love, we see it happening to people who are innocent. We realize that life is not fair. As Solomon said, the battle, the race isn't to the, the battle isn't the strong, the race isn't to the swift. And he says very uncomfortingly, time and chance happens to us all. It's kind of a way of saying, well, it's kind of the luck of the draw in life. And so as you look at your life in this world, you can't help but ask the question, God, why is it this way? And that's really what the book of Genesis, and particularly chapter 3, is setting out to explain. 
Because what it tells us in the first two chapters of Genesis is that God composed the world and then something happened for the world to decompose. And we're living in a world that is regularly decomposing. We, we call it the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, the idea that everything goes from a state of order to disorder, that we realize that as we age, the body ages in a way that makes it less fun to be in this body. We love to sing songs forever young if it were only true. I explained to someone recently that I, would, I don't mind dying, I just want to be in good shape when I do. It's kind of an oxymoronic request, isn't it? And God doesn't seem fit to want to grant that. But the whole point is that we were created to live in a world that I would say was simply safe and satisfying. In fact, it's a world that he says 11 times in the first few chapters, it was good, it was good, it was good. And the word good there means that it was pleasant, it was agreeable, it was excellent. Only once does God say in those first two chapters that anything is not good, and he says it's not good for man to be alone, but immediately he inserts the perfect fit to the problem. He says, I'll make a helper, a companion, someone to complement and complete the man so that he provides the perfect fit. Which is interesting, as he has the perfect fit and it's a perfect fix, this today now becomes also the predominant problem. That this union that God said was going to be this completive experience suddenly becomes a place of great tension for anyone and everyone who enters into a marriage relationship. When you see somebody, you see a couple, and it seems like they're so, so in love and so compatible, their relationship is so perfect, it's not true. It's not true. Because there's something else that Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, that God not only gave man good things, but he also gave us a free will. That free will, which is that ability to make choices, the ability to say both yes to God and also, amazingly, the ability to say no to God. Now, this is one of the great mysteries of theology. How is it that a sovereign God who is over all things and controls all things could give to mankind a limited degree of sovereignty, which is only enough that we could say to the God of the universe, no. We could say to him, no. And if you've ever had small kids, you realize we start saying that very early in life. It's our first and favorite word, isn't it? We can say yes to God, and he illustrates it by telling us that he placed in this identic reality two trees. One they could partake of, the tree of life, eat of much of it you want, and the other one was the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't touch it, don't even look at it, and certainly don't taste it, because the day you do is the day in which you'll die. All God gave mankind was one rule, one command, and he couldn't keep it. That's why I always like to say to the legalists, you know, by multiplying more rules, you're not going to get better results. 
It's not going to change the dynamics. You know, I remember when the promise keepers were going strong and they had the seven promises of promise keeper and somebody asked me, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I think they're great, great things, great things to promise. I certainly don't disagree with anything, but here's my problem. God gave me the 10 commandments. I can't keep them. Now, if I add seven more, I've got 17. Are the odds that I'm going to become more successful because I have more rules to keep or are the odds that I'm going to find myself having more difficulty even remembering all the rules. And I think if we're honest, most of us will admit we have a hard time keeping track and on track. In fact, Solomon described it simply this way. He said in Ecclesiastes 7.29, he says, God made man upright. I mean, he created man without sin in the sinlessly perfect universe but men have gone in search of many schemes. The, the word schemes there, mental, mental stratagems or mechanisms, uh, it's basically saying, but man thought that he had a better idea. He just thought he had a better idea. I love the way one version puts it, one paraphrase version says, God made men and women true and upright. We're the ones who have made a mess of things. We're the ones who have made a mess of things. And it's all based upon this one decision that chapter 3 describes, a decision that changes everything for everyone forever. And the Bible defines it by one simple word, describes it with one simple word, the word sin. The word sin in the Hebrew literally means to miss the target. In other words, here's the bullseye and you're hitting all around it. You're never really scoring and that defines the nature of man. And it's describing something that's not just simply endemic to us, but something that also became epidemic. What do I mean by that, endemic and epidemic? It's endemic in the sense that it's, it's in us. In fact, in Romans 5, 16, Paul said, the result of the one man's sin brought condemnation. That there is a, a sin nature within us. There's this thing within us that simply says, I want to do what I want to do rather than doing what God wants. I can, it's this thing inside of me that says, well, I know it's wrong, but I can't help myself. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I mean, if you've ever tried to go on a diet, you know all about this, right? I know I shouldn't eat yet another bag of potato chips. We, we, had, we had a bunch of potato chip bags left over the Lay's originals, you know, from one of our events, and they were in the kitchen in the staff room, and they had them in a cabinet, and they had them locked back in there. And I don't know what happened, but one day I went for yet another bag, and they were all gone. <laughs> and I was the only one I ever saw eating them. But I, I'm sure it wasn't me. But as I'm sitting there saying, you know what, there's no way I can justify eating these things, <laughs> but what the heck? <laughs> And I found myself wolfing these down, three or four of them a day. Only regretted they didn't have the big bags. What is that about you and I that knows that, you know, that's not a good choice, that's not a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway? Well, we have to understand that that's that sin dynamic that's operative, and sometimes it's something not that bad as eating 25 bags of potato chips Sometimes it involves really serious life-destroying choices and decisions. And that's really what we're looking at here. Because you see, because it's endemic, it becomes epidemic. 
that we find that disease and disaster and dysfunction and devilish behavior by men and women who know better spreads across the land. There are maybe millions, even billions of culprits we can point to, but there's only one root cause, and that cause is sin. So that I can point out and saying, well, it's her, it's him, it's them, it's this, it's that, and I can say, these are the culprits, but they're just expressing the very thing that's inside of me. Sin is not just our behavior, it's our nature. And that sin not only destroys destinies, but it also destroys relationships. And that's really where our passage, I think, comes into play here. Because what we began to find is that there is an amazing breakdown in relationships. First, the relationship with God, then relationship between Adam and Eve, and eventually their relationship with their own children and with society as a whole. It really, the dominoes begin to topple rather quickly and it doesn't change throughout the entirety of the biblical record. So that the toppling of the dominoes of sin extends all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ and even beyond into our own time that we're living in. Well, interestingly, because as we analyze what happens here, we find that all begins in the story with a cleverly placed question rather disingenuinely posed. The serpent says to Eve, he said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And I love Eve's response because she says the right thing. She says, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not t touch it or you will die. And immediately that response is followed by another contradicting the word of God and saying God is lying to you. You will not die, he asserts. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he levels essentially these charges against the very character and trustworthiness of God and the trustworthiness of the things that God says. He says, God isn't telling you the truth, at least not the whole truth. He's withholding from you information. Why? Well, we can only assume because God is so threatened by us. He is so insecure. He doesn't want you to become just like him. And so he's not telling you everything. But even below all of that assertion is this fundamental statement that oftentimes destroys people. It's the belief that disobeying God is more advantageous, is more profitable than obeying God. I mean, when you get down to saying, why did I do what I did? Why did I know that the Bible says, thou shalt not, and yet I did it anyway? The answer is always the same. That in my mind, deep inside my thought processes, I concluded that even though God said, don't do this, it was more to my advantage to do it and disregard what God says than to do what God says. Because at the moment disregarding God felt more comfortable, 
felt safer, felt more fun. And this is why walking with God is always a faith dynamic, because my feelings do not support obedience. Unless I've had the historical experience of disobeying God and knowing what it's like to have myself beat to a pulp because of my poor choices, and then coming back and saying, that hurts so much, I don't want to think I want to do that again. Well, maybe once more, but then, you know, but we live in this dynamic, and what we have to understand is this is the prevailing mindset that you and I struggle with. We really do look at God's Word, which says, don't do this, and we say, well, maybe in the Greek I can get a different reading. Maybe if I read the message or the living Bible or this, maybe I can find it phrased in a different way someplace so it isn't quite so prohibitive. And it happens all the time. It's happening more and more in the culture we live where people are saying, well, that was then, this is now. So God, I mean, the, the guy who wrote that, was he, yeah, he, was, he was inspired, but it wasn't given by inspiration of God. He was just very inspired. In other words, Paul was just very full of himself at that moment and wrote some things. Or, in fact, one translator even spoke of something that Paul said, and it says, obviously, this was a slip of the pen. I mean, you just go, really? <laughs> and you see, what we're really talking about is something that's inside of all of us. When I am very angry, bitter, resentful, and hateful towards uh, someone or something, and then I come across the Word of God and it says, love your enemies and pray for those who take advantage of you and abuse you and do those kind of things, there's something inside of me saying, there's got to be something here in the Greek or the Hebrew to make this not applicable. Maybe I can look at the context and reinterpret it because I don't want to go there. I don't want to have to die to that anger and that passion and that drive and that resentment because I feel powerful and in control when I give place to that. And yet, if I believe that God's word is absolutely true, if I believe that disregarding what God says results in some kind of death, whether it be with a little d or even with a big d, if I really believe that's true, if I really believe, as the psalmist said, the word of God is flawless and is perfect, then I'm going to listen to what God says. But we have to be patient with Adam and Eve because they were amateurs. They hadn't practiced this before. This was their first time on the pony, and they fell off pretty hard. Because you see, what essentially the serpent did was he presented them with a half-truth. Half-truths are common everywhere. We see it all the time. When the package says, new and improved, and we realize it's the same product on the inside, the only thing that's new and improved is the cover. But everything else is basically the same thing. It's the same toothpaste. It's the same, it's the same soap. It's all the same. Nothing has really changed. But we buy into it because of the impression is that somehow this is going to be a different experience. Well, Half-truths were very difficult and painful in this because, yes, it was true that if they ate the fruit, in a sense, they would be like God. Now, if I were to say, you know, you look just like my uncle, that's not going to make you my uncle. And saying you're going to be like God, if you partake of this, isn't going to make you God-like. 
It's just simply that you're going to experience something that you hadn't experienced that has previously to this been only experienced by God, and that is to really know experientially the difference between what is good and what is evil. And the lie comes into this because now they have this knowledge, they don't have the power to do the good with any consistency, and they don't have the power to resist the evil. So knowledge without the power to control what you know is its own kind of judgment. There are things that we come to know that we wish we didn't know because we can't do anything about it. But more to our point, in that moment, Adam and Eve went from being, as it said back in chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and they felt no shame, to, in chapter 3, verse 7, the eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, we often focus upon the physical nature of being undressed. But the real issue is here is what entered into them was an emotion that they had previously not known, and it's called shame. Instantaneously, the world went from being a safe and satisfying place to being a sinful and shame-filled place. They became ashamed. And every single person since then has been operating from the same context of sinfulness and shame. It's interesting because when you come to the issue of shame, people will deny it. Sometimes they'll defend it or they'll redefine it. But the truth is, shame, more than any other thing, tends to define you and me. In fact, Brene Brown, who's a psychological researcher who spent her entire life professional life, studying the effect of shame, says that in our world today, it is an epidemic. We live in a culture that it has an epidemic of shame. Now, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Well, there are associated. Guilt is a fact. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they became guilty before God. They did what they're not supposed to do. That's why Brown says, basically, saying that I'm guilty is saying, I have done something bad. And what the Bible tells us later on in Romans is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So guilt is something that we all share in. We're all guilty a good deal of the time of one thing or another. I hate to say it, but if you're sucking air, you're probably sinning somewhere. It's just kind of the way it works. I mean, in your thoughts, it may travel to your words, it may travel to your actions, but this is the thing that besets us. And it may be a different thing. As the writer of Hebrews says, that every one of us may be beset with a different kind of proclivity towards a kind of thinking and sinfulness, but it is part of what we deal, and we all stand guilty before God. That that's why the Bible says there's none 
righteous in and of him or herself. There's none of us like the guy who says, well, when I get up there, I'm going to talk to God and say, hey, this is Weezer. You know, remember me, the good old boy from down the street? I know I'm not perfect, but you know, on a score, on a, on a scale of nine to one to ten, I, I think I'm a probably a seven or eight. You know, this whole idea of negotiating our way into heaven based upon a relative sense of goodness. The Bible says, no, all mankind is guilty before God. And what that guilt does is it produces an emotion. The guilt is a forensic fact. But what it does is it promotes an emotion. And even if you reject the idea that you have anything to be guilty of, it doesn't change the fact. So that if I say to my wife as we're cruising down the highway at 85 miles an hour, and she says, do you know how fast you're driving? And I say to her, no, because I refuse to look. Or if I say, well, you know, everybody knows it's, you can drive 10 miles over the speed limit, that's okay. And 15 is probably okay too. I mean, I can justify, I can rationalize, I can explain it away, I can come up with every excuse on the planet, but it doesn't change the fact that it says 70 and I'm, you know, beyond that. I am guilty of transgressing the law, even though I may not feel guilt. And that's the thing with guilt, I can harden my heart to anything. I can desensitize myself so I no longer feel the pinge of guilt and the discomfort or the fear of some behavior so that we can engage in all sorts of things, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, on and on and on. Well, it's not really stealing because everybody knows that if you can get away with it on your tax return, it doesn't really count. Or as my father used to always say, well, hey, it's buyer beware, unless, of course, he was the buyer and then he'd go ballistic. But it's easy. We can rationalize it. We can justify it. It's not my fault that I yelled at you because you provoked me. But shame will come anyway. Shame is that emotion that no matter how much we may deny our guilt in our minds, we still feel that shame. And here's the difference. Guilt says, I have done something bad. Shame says, I am somebody who is bad. Shame is that devaluing voice, that diminishing voice, that voice inside of our hearts that says, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not strong enough, you're not fast enough, you're just not enough. You have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. It's that shame that cripples people. It cripples us. And it causes us to react in certain predictable patterns. In fact, what's so amazing is I read this story over and over again. I always see the pattern being played out exactly the way it plays out in my life and just about everybody else's life. That when shame is operating, we tend to do the same three things. We tend to cover up, hide, and blame. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. It says that in verse 7, it says, as soon as they, their eyes were opened and they became ashamed, they, made, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
The problem with cover-ups is they tend to actually aggravate the problem rather than alleviate it or even hide it. Uh, fig leaves is an interesting choice, having grown up in California, picking figs as a kid. I remember the first time I took a job working in an orchard picking figs, and they handed me a long sleeve shirt, a pair of long pants, and rubber gloves. I said, what is this for? And they said, to protect you. Because when you pick the fig, there's a latex, a white latex foam that comes out of the stem. And if you get it on your hands, it will stain them black, but it also, it can be an irritant to many people and makes them itch and actually break out in hives and so forth. And if you get next to the leaves, they have little tiny fibers in them. That's a lot like rubbing up against fiberglass. And it gets into your skin and causes terrible itching. So here, Adam and Eve, in their brilliance, in their power of self-saving, take these fig leaves because they are massive in their size and they stitch them together and cover their private parts. That must have been thrilling. I mean, yeah, I just have this picture in my mind of them sitting there going, you know, this is not, this is not fun. We go, oh, it's worse. You see, that's what happens. We, we try to cover it up because we think by covering it up, then other people won't see it. It's almost like little children sometimes, you know, when they're hiding from you, they go, where am I? had a friend who had a stuttering problem, <laughs> and uh, he came up behind me one time and put his hands over my eyes and said, g guess who it is? <laughs> uh, yeah, hi, Adi. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it, we try to hide things, and we just actually make it worse. I remember when I was, uh, my parents uh, made me get braces when I was in junior high, and uh, back in those days, you got braces, you know, it was like the, the grill of a 57 Buick, you know, you just, ooh, <laughs> it was a pretty unattractive thing. And, and it was a form of ancient torture, actually. They, they learned how to fix your teeth from the rack because they put the wires in there and then they cranked them down on your teeth. And it was just, it was just really, really, uh, nobody knows the hardships I've been through. Anyway. But I remember when I got them off. And one day I was talking to some friends and, and, and a guy said, you used to wear braces, didn't you? I said, what do you mean? He says, I can tell you used to wear braces. I said, how can you tell? He says, because every time you laugh, you cover your mouth. And you see, long after whatever was causing shame in our life, it can alter our behavior so that we react to life in a way that still shows that we're still living and carrying shame. It alters our behavior patterns. That long after we know that it's wrong to, to lust and to hate and to steal and to judge other people, we still can be reacting to those kind of things because of the shame that they produce in our lives. The problem is that when I try to cover up my issues, I actually aggravate my issues. So that when we talk about men who are muy, muy macho, I know that anybody who really is asserting their masculinity has serious questions about how masculine they actually are. They're just overcompensating. 
In fact, that's what the word compensate means. It means to make up for what was lost by covering up. And what was lost in Adam and Eve was the innocence and the purity. And they were trying to hide the fact that they no longer could look at each other without thinking differently about the other. It changed the relationship. So that didn't work real well. And then suddenly it says that God, who was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and we get the impression that this had been kind of a regular thing, that every day Adam and Eve had this mono e mono conversation with God. We think it's, he says, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, that it's a pre-incarnate man manifestation of Jesus, that literally Christ the Word of God is meeting with them on a daily basis. Obviously, He is having conversation with them. He is functioning as their Father in the most real and tangible way. And suddenly, instead of being excited about that intimate relationship that they had, they went and said, and they hid themselves from the Lord. And that's the second thing that shame does. It makes us want to hide. We may try to cover it up and we try to hide away so that it can't be uncovered because sooner or later we discover that it doesn't go away. We can't cover it up. It will find its way to the surface one way or another. And so we begin to withdraw in the relationship. And it's interesting because God is a, a relational God and He doesn't really... Um, endorse or support that effort to withdraw, and he keeps on pushing us into these dynamics. You ever notice that there are certain people that really rub you wrong, and it seems like God has chosen to populate the universe, or at least the one you're in with those kind of people? That as much as you say, I just don't like to deal with those kind of people, and suddenly you look around, and those kind of people are all around you. You want to hide away. You want to withdraw. One day I'm just going to go off in the mountains and live all by myself in a little cabin surrounded by concertina wire and claymores. And all I'm going to have for windows is bullet, bullet turrets so I can, gun turrets so I can shoot anybody that get, tries to get near my, my canned goods. <laughs> the problem is you'll find yourself still being there with you. It reminds me of the old guy who went from church to church to church, and every church he, he'd get into conflict with because none of them had right doctrine. And finally, uh, he was having coffee with a friend one day, and his friend says, so uh, how are things going? He said, well, we just decided we'd start our own church. Nobody else can get it right. He says, oh, well, how's that working out? He says, well, it's really good. It's just me and Ethel. But you know, sometimes I wonder about Ethel's theology. <laughs> And I think it, it kind of illustrates in a humorous way, I hope, that we're still with ourselves. We can't hide from our own guilt and, and the shame that it produces. And so because none of that works, we revert to what finally Adam and Eve found themselves reverting to. And when God says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's not like God didn't know that. God knew what they did. So why is he asking them? The same reason he asked you. He wants you to confess. He wants you to acknowledge, God, I was wrong. The man said, instead of confessing, you know, he, all he had to do, the, simple question, it's almost like watching debates, right? Simple question, how about a simple answer? Did you eat of the tree that I forbid you to eat from? And the answer could be a yes or a no. But he doesn't go there. Where does he go? The woman 
which by the way, you gave to me. Did I ask for her? I was just doing fine. Me and the milk cow were doing great until you brought... We project out here. We blame someone else. And he turns to Eve and he gets the same response. And Eve said, he says, what did you do? She could have just said, I ate the fruit. But she says, well, that serpent, that snake that you created, that you put into the garden, that cunning, shrewd creature deceived me. It's not my fault. Why does this matter? Well, because until we understand this dynamic about our, the way that we relate, we're going to find that we're going to continually run in circles and never get anywhere in terms of our relationship. Because the first place we need to look at breakdown in relationship is not at the other person and what they did or how they're behaving. The first place we need to begin looking is, what have I done? What have I done? How have I added to this problem? Wednesday night, I shared a, a, a story, and, um, and uh, most of you weren't there. I talked to my wife and my counselor, and she said, read it again, because it's a good story. So I'm going to read it again, and for those of you who are Wednesday night, you get double, double stars on your chart for having been there, but you probably need to hear it again. It was something, it was actually written by uh, Richard Paul Evans, who was a New York Times uh, bestseller, and uh, he's written over 25 novels. He's a Christian. But he, it reads like this. He says, for years, my wife Carrie and I struggled. Looking back, I'm not exactly sure what initially drew us together, but our personalities didn't quite match up. And the longer we were married, the more extreme the differences seemed. Encountering fame and fortune did not make our marriage any easier. In fact, it exacerbated our problems. The tension between us got so bad that going out on book tour became a relief, though it seems we always paid for it on re-entry. Our fighting became so constant that it was difficult to even imagine a peaceful relationship. We became perpetually defensive, building emotional fortresses around our hearts. We were on the edge of divorce, and more than once we discussed it. I was on a book tour when things came to a head. We had just had another big fight on the phone, and Carrie had hung up on me. I was alone and lonely, frustrated and angry, and I had reached my limit. That's when I turned to God, or turned on God. I don't know if you could call it prayer, maybe shouting at God isn't prayer, maybe it is, but whatever I was engaged in, I'll never forget it. I was standing in the shower of the Buckhead Atlanta Ritz-Carlton, yelling at God that marriage was wrong and I couldn't do it anymore, and as much as I hated the idea of divorce, the pain of being together was just too much. I was also confused. I couldn't figure out why marriage with Carrie was so hard. Deep down, I knew that Carrie was a good person, I, and I was a good person, so why couldn't we get along? Why had I married someone so different than me? Why wouldn't she change? Finally, hoarse and broken, I sat down in the shower and began to cry, and in the depths of my despair, powerful inspiration came to me. You can't change her, Rick. 
you can only change yourself. At that moment, I began to pray, if I can't change her, then God, change me. I prayed late into the night. I prayed the next day on the flight home. I prayed as I walked in the door to a cold wife who barely even acknowledged me. That night, as we lay in our bed, inches from each other, yet miles apart, the inspiration came. I knew what I had to do. The next morning, I rolled over in bed next to Carrie and asked, how can I make your day better? Carrie looked at me angrily, what? <laughs> how can I make your day better? You can't, she said. Why are you asking that? Because I mean it. I just want to know what I can do to make your day better. She looked at me cynically. You want to do something? Go clean the kitchen. So, she likely expected me to get mad. Instead, I just nodded, okay, and I got up and I cleaned the kitchen. Next day, I asked the same thing. What can I do to make your day better? Her eyes narrowed. Clean the garage. I took a deep breath. <laughs> I already had a busy day, and I knew she made the request in spite. I was tempted to blow up at her. Instead, I said, okay. And I got up for the next two hours, cleaned the garage. Carrie wasn't sure what to think, but the next morning came, what can I do to make your day better? Nothing, she said. You can't do anything. Please stop saying that. I'm sorry, I said, but I can't. I made a commitment to myself. What can I do to make your day better? Why are you doing this? Because I care about you and our marriage. The next morning I asked again, and the next, and the next. Then during the second week, a miracle occurred. As I asked the question, Carrie's eyes welled up with tears. And then she broke down crying, and when she could speak, she said, please stop asking me that. You're not the problem. I am. I'm hard to live with. I don't know why you stay with me. I gently lifted her chin until she was looking in my eyes. It's because I love you, I said. What can I do to make your day better? I should be asking you that, she said. You should, I agreed. <laughs> but now, but not now, right now, I need to change. You need to know how much you mean to me. She put her head against my chest. I'm sorry I've been so mean. I love you, I said. I love you, she replied. So, what can I do to make your day better? <laughs> and she looked at me sweetly. Can we maybe just spend some time together? I smiled. I'd like that. I continued asking for more than a month. And things did change. The fighting stopped. And then Carrie began asking, What do you need from me? How can I be a better wife? The walls between us fell. 
we began having meaningful discussions on what we wanted from life and how we could make each other happier. No, we didn't solve all our problems. I can't even say we never fought again, but the nature of our fights changed. Not only were they becoming more and more rare, they lacked the energy they'd once had. We deprived them of oxygen. We just didn't have it in us to hurt each other anymore. We just didn't have it in us to hurt each other anymore. You know, probably the most important statement in the entire third chapter of Genesis is in the ninth verse where God calls out to Adam and Eve and he simply says, where are you? Where are you? God knew in an instant that the relationship had been broken as sin rushed in like a broken dam. And his heart's concern was, where are you? And it's interesting to me that that's essentially the heart that God wants us to have in our marriage relationships, to mimic his example. Because what, what most of us fall into is the trap of, here I am, when are you going to show up? Here I am, when are you going to become the husband? When are you going to become the wife that I need? Where are you right now? I need, you know, on and on and on we go. And it never occurs to us that what God is trying to bring us to is the place where we're asking the question, where are you and how can I find you? <laughs> what Evans is telling this story, he says, you know what that looked like? It, it, it came in the form of a question, what can I do to make your day better? And little by little, that question eroded an angry, wounded heart who was so afraid of being rejected that she put up a wall and fought back who felt so unsafe in the relationship emotionally that she lived with guards up to protect her. Now, many of us fall into what I like to call the game of get away closer. We, we send out these signals, why don't you show me that you love me? You don't bring me flowers. You know, we, we do all this kind of stuff. And then when the person starts getting close to us, we say, wait a minute, back off. That's a little bit too close, too fast. And then we keep on doing it. And it creates a state of real confusion in the other person. And it's because we're centering everything on ourselves. We're making it all about us. Jesus never made it about himself. He always made it about you. He always makes it about you. And he says, you know, if we're going to live as Christians and live in marriage as Christians, it's learning how to not, to stop making it always about ourselves, and asking the question, what can I do to make your life better? And every one of us knows that the root of it is, if you can help me to be free from the shame that I feel because of the guilt that I feel. If you can just do that, and sometimes that just begins by praying for each other, just praying for each other, both together but individually, and it's praying that God would open your eyes that I can see what I can do to make their life better, and it's asking those questions. What can I do to make your life better and not living in reaction?
There's nothing more emotionally debilitating than selfishness. There's nothing that will make you more miserable more quickly than being self-absorbed. One of the worst sins the Bible talks about is in terms of selfish ambition. That I want something for myself without regard as to how that's going to impact anybody else. When I realized that I married my wife so that she could dedicate her life to making me happy, <laughs> and that wasn't going real well, <laughs> because she married me with the premise that I would dedicate my life to making her happy. And we argued over the failure of the other one to live up to the prearranged agreement that none of us knew was coming nor ever had signed off for. The assumptions that you go into with, and that became the dynamic and has come back again and again over 46 years every time we forgot that it's not about how do I get you to make me happy, what can I do to make your day better? Father, I pray that you give us seeing eyes and hearing ears. Give us minds that are able to absorb and to process. But also, most importantly, Lord, to give us hearts that are willing to humble ourselves before you. And as you direct to humble ourselves before one another. Our husbands, our wives are remarkable gifts that should never be taken for granted. Lord, help us to value that so much that we would be willing to ask that question, what can I do to make your life better? That's what Ephesians 5 is talking about. That's what it's about. Husbands loving your wives, wives respecting your husbands. That's where it starts. I pray that you give us the ability to absorb that into our own minds in the individual way that we each need to know it and to hear it so that it can percolate into our lives in a way that expresses itself in meaningful action from which transformational change takes place. We ask for that miracle, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our closing time with a, just a, a response in worship to God, I would just really ask you to worship God in the way that He is speaking to your heart right now. And I say that because worship we oftentimes limit to singing a song but worship is really what's supposed to be the definitive behavior of the life of a child of God. We, we, that everything we do, we worship Him in our, in our speaking, we worship Him in our giving, we worship Him in our serving, we worship Him in, in, in everything that we do in our life. We worship God or are supposed to. And even this morning, I just ask you to worship God by responding to Him as He is speaking to you that maybe... You just need to quietly bow your head right where you're at and say, God, I, I've really blown it. I, I've been in sin. I admit it, that I've been selfish and self-absorbed. 
That's a powerful moment because that's where victory over self-absorption and selfishness comes is when I just simply admit to God, that's my sin. Sometimes it, it, it may be even more than that. God may want you to say to your husband or to your wife or your boyfriend, your girlfriend or whoever it is, significant other in your life and saying, I'm really sorry. Those are simple actions and sometimes we say, well, that's not enough. But it's all we have. If we acknowledge our sin, John said, he forgives us. He cleanses us. <laughs> I like to put it this way. He wipes the slate clean and he fixes us. Which part of that do you not understand? You can't clean your own slate. You can't remove your sin, your guilt, your shame. And you can't fix you, but he can. And he says the key is just simply opening the door and saying, you are welcome to come into my life and do your work on me so that I can be different. And your life changes in profound ways. But my prayer is that would happen <laughs> in you. That it would happen in me. I know, it's easy for me to get up here and say this. It used to be easy for me to get up here and say this. You know what I've learned through the years? I have to leave here today and God says, okay, dude, now let's see how you do, Mr. Know-it-all. <laughs> I see a tough week ahead of me. No, I don't say it easily, simply. I know it's hard. Sin nature is endemic to me, and it, it produces an epidemic of bad behavior in all of us, even if it's only in our thought life. If I find myself becoming offended and beginning to become resentful in my heart towards my wife or anybody else, you'll learn to step back and say, wait a minute, I have no right or permission to be resentful. Forgive me, Father. Forgive me. But that's where the peaceable fruit of righteousness that Paul speaks of begins to express itself in your life, and you begin to change. You won't see it necessarily, but the people who are closest to you will, and they'll be glad you did, and they'll want to become imitators of what you've done, and that's how this thing works. That's how it changes marriages, it changes family, it changes communities, it changes churches, is when people just begin to take responsibility for their own stuff and bring it into confession to God. So I encourage you to do that.